Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman, and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff, brought to you by Livewire Markets. There are only a handful of people in the Australian funds management industry well enough known to be identified by their first name. Anton Taliaferro is one of them. Anton, recently retired, forged a 30-plus year career as a portfolio manager. He survived the ups and downs of the 87 crash, the tech wreck, the GFC and COVID to thrive and come out on top of the market. Very few people in Australia can lay claim to such longevity. Born in Malta, Anton took on an unorthodox path to the funds management job in Australia. First, he headed to the UK in search of a career before packing up and moving to the other side of the world. In his favour was a fledgling funds management industry in Australia, buoyed by superannuation. Anton entered the industry through Perpetual, where he worked with such luminaries as John Murray and Peter Morgan. There, he learned about value investing as the team picked over the rubble of the 87 crash. Next, he packed his bags and moved to Melbourne working for County NatWest. It was here that he started to develop a strong personal brand name as a high caliber manager. It wasn't long though, and he was back in the Harbour City working for BMP. In the back of his mind was the prospect of running his own show. In 1998, he struck out and formed Investors Mutual. Over the next 25 years, it became a mainstay of the funds management landscape, hitting $8 billion in funds under management. I first met Anton in 1994, when I was a journalist at the SMH. He always had a view on markets and was always generous with his time. Welcome, Anton. Congratulations on a great career. Thanks, Matt. It's great, been, great been an interesting journey. It's been a long and interesting one, yes. And I gather you've enjoyed it. Good, yeah, it's good career choice. Ups and downs, yeah. It turned out to be a very good choice. You know, I've had a lot of ups and downs and sometimes a few self-doubts, but yeah, at the end it worked out very well. Well, you've got to have self-doubts, don't you? Otherwise it doesn't work. Fear of not, not making it success. I guess so, yeah. That's what gets, keeps you going. <laughs> um, well, that's an interesting start. There's not many um, people in our industry that would have grown up in Malta. Mm. What what was that like? Did you grow up in Valletta or a small town somewhere yeah, nearby? Yeah, I was brought up uh, in Valletta and then we moved to a place called Balsam, which was a smaller village, um, about half an hour from Valletta. No, was very far in Malta. <laughs> and um, yeah, I did my education in Malta, you know, did my O-levels and A-levels as they are. And I was always sort of earmarked to become a doctor. My, my mother was very keen on me to become a Medical doctor. What went wrong? <laughs> well, what happened, we had a, a bit of a political upheaval, upheaval in Malta and the doctor's f- course got cancelled actually for a year or two because all the doctors resigned. It's a long story. And so I ended up um, basically in London. Uh, it was too late to get into a medical course. You know, I was only 18, 19. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was sort of driven into going to do medicine because my mother wanted me to. I, as I said, at 18, 19, especially in those days, you know, you didn't have the internet or that much information. I mean, kids today have got all sorts of careers advice, internet, etc. But anyway, so, and I ended up doing accountancy in London, an accountancy degree. And after I finished my degree, which was for three years, I joined Deloitte's Haskins and Sells. In London? In London, yeah, as an apprentice junior accountant. And uh, I qualified as a chartered accountant with Deloitte after three years. And uh, yeah, they offered me a job in Sydney. Very good. Well, before we get to Australia, let, let, let's go back to Malta. What, you're talking about the um, education there. What, what was it based on? Was it an English system, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, because Malta was a British colony for almost 200 years. 
so everybody talks English. In fact, the school I went to you had to talk English. You couldn't talk uh, Maltese. Um, and we did the same, you know, the O levels and A levels as, as they did in England. So yeah, it was it was. So uh, it was a good grounding. Yeah, yeah. Very. I went to a very strict school, um, Jesuit school, which was very very tough. But uh, yeah, they 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 made you work very hard, and and I learnt a lot of values from that. Not a boarding school though. No, not a boarding school. And, and what was it like besides the strict schooling? What was it like growing up in Malta? Look, again, we're talking the 1960s, you know, I guess uh, similar to many places, you know. Um, kids didn't have the... I mean, today kids live a very different life, you know. They've got um, PlayStation, Facebook, five different channels to choose from, etc. So in those days it was really uh, pretty basic, you know, black and white TV, um, playing football with your friends in some fields around your house, and that's what it was like, really, so, apart so from lots of... Schooling and private lessons to get through the number of exams that we always had in, at, at school in Malta. So we know you're a great lover of soccer or I football. Mm -hmm. um, you were playing it back then. That's where it all grew from. Yes, yes. I, I, I mean, my, my father was a, a great football fan. Uh, he was a bank manager, by the way. So, um, and uh, my mother really disliked football, but that's not true. <laughs> and my father would uh, and I would sort of sneak out on Saturdays or Sundays to, to go and watch a, a local game in Malta together. And you had your local team. You, mm -hmm. Did you have naturally have an Italian team you followed, given yeah, because, that was nearby? Or did yeah, you have a French again, team? Again, no. Again, in those days, you know, there was, I think, we only had one Malta channel, TV Malta, and we could also get the Italian channels um, on, on our TVs because we're only you know, 60 miles away from Sicily. So we used to watch Italian teams a lot, yeah, Italian football. So I was a, a, a big AC Milan fan when I was young. And, and what was your position? Oh, me? Oh, I used to play midfield, yeah, like a, lots of running, so, yeah. And, and good? Would you rate yourself as a, a good young player? I had a lot of stamina, perhaps not too much skill, but a lot of running, and I was, I was pretty gritty in the middle, so, yeah. And, and you loved it? Yeah, I loved it, yeah, yeah. I was also a very good runner, by the way. I did marathons when I was young, so... Um, okay, uh, yeah. well, tell us about that. Well, yeah, I, I, marathons I, as a kid. That's well, that's cross country they were called, not marathons. But yeah, I, I, at Saint Aloysius, which is where I used to go to, was uh, very obviously academically they were very strong, but also they were all, also prided themselves on their sporting teams. And one day when I was fourteen, I, I decided to participate in the cross country race. I'd never really practiced much, and, and I won it. And then I represented the college for the next two years in, in lots of races. So it was good, interesting, and. Competitive? Did you like racing against others? Oh yeah, yeah, I loved it. You know, loved. I wanted to win, but I didn't <laughs> always win. But yeah, I've always wanted to win. I've always had this desire. You know, even when I play football, people say I'm a bit of uh, white line fever, a bit boisterous. You know, because <laughs> I, I, I um, you know, urge on my teammates. So yeah, I, I love, I love to win. You know, there's, there's no, there's something about me where I love to win. I don't take loss very easily. So that, that no doubt is a good grounding for funds management in the future because it's a competitive industry. But that, that's interesting. Your dad was a bank manager. Mm -hmm. Your mum wasn't working. She was, she was at home mm -hmm. bringing... And did you have any siblings? Yeah, I had a younger brother and, and, and an older sister. Right. And so she, she was the homemaker as such. Mm -hmm. Business-wise, if your dad's a bank manager, does he come home and talk about what happened at the bank that day? Or what, what, he used what was to a little bit. I, rem like? I remember my dad. I mean, he's passed away now, unfortunately, but because he was a great guy. Um, he used to come home with his Financial Times, and uh, I remember him always sitting there on the sofa reading the Financial Times because he was very much into bonds because he, he actually got promoted within the bank to end up uh, setting up a, a bond 
trading section for the bank. So he was really a bond guy, you know. So, um, so yeah, he was always sort of pontificating about something in the markets. But, you know, you're a young boy, you're more into football, etc. So you, you didn't take much, too much notice. But he was there in the background, yes. And, and that, that's interesting because I remember the first time I spoke to you, you said, Matthew, always look at the bond market. Mm. So it might have started way back in the 1960s, back in, yeah, yeah. Back in Malta. Yeah. So why, why the decision to go to the UK? Why not stay in Malta, is it? Well, as I said, because there was political upheaval. Uh, there was a prime minister called Dom Mintoff who, was, who turned everything upside down. In fact, my dad's bank, um, you know, was, was nationalised by the government. He was very communist and left-wing. There were lots of things going on in Malta, and my parents decided it was best for... And, and I wasn't the only one, by the way. A lot of guys in my class ended up going to England, most of them to do medicine, by the way, because that's what <laughs> I was earmarked to do. But I ended up in England doing uh, accountancy. And so that stays with you, that upheaval? A political unrest about... Look, yeah, look, I had to grow up very quickly. I mean, you know, I was 18, 19, living in Malta, kind of very small country, sunshine, blue sea, and suddenly, you know, I'm sort of in London, living on my own, um, you know, having to look after my own money, do my own laundry, et cetera, et cetera. And in London's a pretty tough place, you know, to go... Big town. ...as an 18, 19-year-old, and, you know, the completely different weather... You know, people aren't the friendliest. Uh, in those days, it was some parts of it were pretty dangerous as well. You know, so yeah, it was it was a big change. And where did you land in London? You say you're living by yourself. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's another story. I ended up because my father left it late because my father really didn't want me to go to England. He really wanted me to stay in Malta, and we only sort of left when it when it became clear there was no, no there was no uh, medical course in Malta. So we sort of took off and went up to to London. And because it was September, as I said, the, all the medical courses were, were gone, had gone. And I ended up doing accountancy and all the good accommodation places were gone as well. So I ended up in a, living in an old lady's home. Uh, Where was that? In Elephant and Castle, which was an awful area. But I had my own room in an in a, yeah, old lady's home. It was the first year that let in a, a few students. Uh, so, so that was interesting as well. Were you miserable? It didn't sound like you were too happy. It was tough. It was tough. You know, as I said, 18, 19, you're sort of, you know, at home, driving your mum's car, living at home, your meals are prepared, whatever, and then overnight you kind of, you know, find yourself alone in a, um, you know, an old lady's home and going to college, which was also very tough, by the way. And so college, you started accountancy. That was your... That was the choice post-medicine because of the circumstances yeah. that you didn't get in. Did you take to that well? Yeah, I did, actually. Look, I, I was always good with numbers, to be honest, uh, from when I was a kid. So um, when my father said, look, there's no medical course, what, what else can you look at? And I said, I, I don't know that. And he said, what about accountancy? I said, okay, I'm happy to look at that. As I said, when you're 18, 19, you're really faced with a choice, What you know, today, what would you do? I said accountancy. He actually knew somebody at Deloitte's because Deloitte used to audit his bank, uh, the bank he worked for in London. So we went to see them. They recommended, a, you know, to go to the Institute of Chartered Accountants. We traipsed around there. They recommended a college up the road. Uh, I did a test almost straight away and they offered me a place, you know, two weeks before the course started. So, yeah, it all happened very quickly. And so you spent three years studying in London? Were three you years at the, and working at the college, at Deloitte at the and same then time. after that, um, six years in London. So three years doing the course full time, uh, accountancy degree, and then three years I joined Deloitte's. And what did they have you doing at Deloitte's? Was it audit? Yes, unfortunately, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's I a good learning ground, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, it was interesting. It was very interesting, actually. Like a, a couple of things stick out in my head still very clearly, you know, in terms of 
um, you know, how companies can manipulate the accounts to show, you know, <laughs> the result they want what, to what show. Were, without naming names, what were some of the tricks? Oh, look, I'll tell you. I mean, one company had been privatised by the by the Thatcher government in those days, you know, and their profits were well ahead of where they should be, so they wanted to hide, uh, you know, keep their profits down. Uh, so what they did is they set up all these massive provisions, you know, for... for, for for nothing really, <laughs> provisions for hot air. But anyway, that they did that to keep their not not to make the UK government look uh, stupid that they sold it to at too low a price. From there, I went to another company which was subject to a takeover. It was P and O actually, um, and what they did was they changed the accounting policies. They wanted their profit to look better, so they changed. They did things like they changed the the depreciable age of the ships from 20 years to 25 years. You know, they they moved the brochures, instead of putting them on a cash basis, they did them on an accruals basis. So they did things to help boost their profit because of the takeover from Cunard. And those kind of instances, did they ring through your head or, or pass through your head as you're looking at accounts in the next 30, 40 years? Yeah, you've got to be very wary, you know, of, of, of what you're presented with because there's a lot of subjectivity in terms of how things are presented, you know. So obviously cash flow is more important sometimes than stated accounting numbers. Um, and you have to trust the people who, you know, who are running the company because, you know, there are, there are ways and means, legal ways and means of, of presenting a, of a, a different picture sometimes to what's actually happening. So th- then you got... Moved to Australia with Deloitte, by the sounds of it, from what you said earlier. Well, it wasn't I, I, moved. I, you I had a choice. For a, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And but that—that's a long way from your family. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like you were pretty, definitely close to your dad, but mm-hmm. close to your family. Mm-hmm. That must have been difficult. Or were yeah, you a young they, guy they looking? They weren't very happy. Yeah, they weren't very happy. Starry-eyed, other side of the world. Yeah, they weren't very happy. Look, I'd met a lot of Australians in London, and I, I realised there were quite different people to uh, <laughs> the English. A lot more open, you know. Um, and after six years. In London, you know the weather, etc. That sort of had enough, and um, yeah, and I, I was offered this position and, and permanent residency at the same time, and I thought, and, and a two-year contract. I thought I'll give it a go, and if I like it, I'll stay. If not, I'll, I'll go back. That's what I told my parents anyway. And you stayed. I stayed. Yeah. So you came here with Deloitte. Yeah. And, and you worked how long? Only about uh, just over a year. Right. And and so then you thought, well, what's my next move in my career? Yes, because obviously Deloitte, you know, had been doing it then by then doing auditing for four years with Deloitte and, um, you know, I wanted to move out and, and do something else. It was very hard to get a, a job, to be honest, because, you know, as an auditor and an accountant, you tend to get pigeonholed. Um, what, what year are we talking? When did you come to Australia? 1983, 84, you know. Um, anyway, I ended up getting a job at, as an internal auditor at, at uh, Chase AMP. In those days, you know, the government had just given 16 new banking licences out and one of them was to Chase Manhattan who formed the joint venture of the AMP. So I was at Chase AMP for one year as an internal auditor, which I I didn't like either. It's never the nicest job. No. No one likes you do that. It was worse. It was worse (laughs) than external auditors, actually. But at the same time, you know, the market was booming. You know, the headlines was all about... Uh, Alan Bond and Spalvins and Holmes Accord and uh, Quintex, whatever. And well, that deregulation of the banking industry changed the landscape in Australia, didn't it? It brought Not a lot of money into Australia. Well, the banking, they, they were, I mean, one thing you've got to say about the Hawke and Keating governments, you know, they did a lot of pretty revolutionary things. You know, they, they floated the Australian dollar, 
They uh, brought in 16 new banks. They, they introduced superannuation. You know, so the, the, it was a, cha- a time of great change in financial markets. I mean, in those days, the industry was dominated by the la- la- large life companies. You know, AMP, National Mutual, Legal and General, Prudential. There was no funds management industry. But clearly, you know, those changes, particularly the superannuation changes, you know, led to a whole, whole new industry then. And so you tweaked you thought there's something happening out there? No, it wasn't that actually. It was more the, as I said, I, the, the the stock market grabbed my attention. You know, Alan Bond doing things, and it was you know it was headlines. It was amazing, and I used to go down to the gallery of the stock exchange in Bond Street. And I don't know if you remember that. It, 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 this is before screen trading, right? Yeah, which was all chalkies. Twenty Bond Street. Twenty Bond Street. That's right, with the Fitness First, isn't it? And I'd go down down there quite often. Even bought a pair of small binoculars, and I got to know some of the characters in the gallery. You know, all these guys who were punting different things, and it really sparked my interest. And then, fortunately, while I was at JCMP, I, I enrolled in the Securities Institute course, and um, one of the courses I did was applied portfolio management, which was basically fund managers at the time getting up and talking about how they managed money. So Sam Kaplan got up from the uh, from NRMA to talk about how he managed money. I don't know we should uh, get Sam on for this podcast one Sam day. He'd be interesting. He was really good, interesting, very interesting. Um, uh, you know, Brian Freeman from Equitaling got up and talked about how, how they did it. Ross Smith-Kirk from Tyndall. You know, this was in different weeks. And I was sitting there going, wow, is that a job? Is that really a job, right? <laughs> Where you go in, uh, you know, you have to analyse and pick companies and... Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I thought, wow, that, that's what I want to do, right? That's that's exactly what that's that, that's just sounds so um, I don't know, exciting's the word, but just something you know, for a dull accountant auditor, you know, who was interested suddenly in the share markets and or, or what was going on, thought, wow, that that would be a fantastic thing to do, right? That would be. It's funny you say that because I remember years ago talking to the legendary Robert Maple Brown, mm-hmm. who was a pioneer, as mm-hmm. we know, in the funds mm-hmm. management industry in Australia. Mm-hmm. And when he told his parents that he was going to start his own funds management business and they said, well, how do you make money out of that? They mm. said, well, people will pay me to manage their money. And mm. they said, who would ever do that? Mm. Which is a little bit the same of what your mm. initial thoughts. Mm. So that that was the interest. But how did you make that move? What how well, again, very, very difficult because uh, in those days I went to a number of interviews, um, Macquarie, all sorts of people. And um, yeah. You just kept applying? Yeah, I did. And uh, with even stockbrokers, etc. And the question I kept getting back is but you're an accountant. Why do you think you can be a fund manager? And you try to explain, but you know, being an accountant is actually good grounding for being a fund manager because you can understand numbers, etc. Right? So know how to read um, accounts. Know how to read accounts. So I, I applied and applied, and and you know, um, was getting <laughs> quite frustrated. And then um, I got a I, I got a job at uh, Prudential Assurance, doing money market essentially, uh, doing the fixed interest, uh, which, which wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but at least it was moving out of the you know, the space with the accounting hat and actually moving into an investment department. And, and so fixed interest? So you were trading bonds effectively? Mainly money, doing bills and cash, basically. The Short-term bond, stuff. Yeah, yeah. The bond guy was my boss and, and uh, he was an interesting guy as well because he was a big trader on the on the futures of bonds. This is 1986, you know, when the uh, Banana Republic and all sorts of, you know, the currencies doing all sorts of things, bonds were moving all over the place. So it was an interesting time, uh, 86, 87. Um, yeah, so I was at Prudential, 
doing money market and uh, you know I thought I'd done a good job I was there sort of 12 18 months and um, spoke to the boss Ian Horton I remember and said Ian what about maybe getting a but it was a good job because every morning you had the morning meetings you know with the equity guys talked about what the Dow did etc etc so at least I was in the it was building out your education yeah and it was working within the industry right we were, we were managing money I was part of a team managing money not in the right <laughs> bit that I wanted to do but at least I was there and I remember sort of asking about you know becoming uh, maybe joining the equities thing but they said they didn't know me well enough uh, you know it would take time you know large, large institutions you know don't tend to move very quickly and at the same time there was a job advertised in the paper for a fixed interest manager I thought, well, at least it's a manager job. I'm no longer a dealer. So I applied for that, and it was a perpetual. And I went along for the interview. And um, Who interviewed you? Peter McKillop. Peter McKillop, right, eh? Who's now chairman of QVE Equities. But anyway. And uh, Peter looked at my resume and went, OK, yes, you're a child of the accountant. I am too. That's good. Oh, you've done your securities institute. That's good. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, by the way, the fixed interest manager position's gone. <laughs> oh, no, OK. And then he said, but the equities manager resigned on Friday. Would you be interested? I said, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested. But I, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I've never done it before, right? He said, oh, no, but I think with your resume and, you know, your background and whatever, um, I think you could do it, you know? I said, well, okay, if you think so, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I said, yes, of course I'm interested. I'll never forget, he said, the, the only thing he said with the job is you'd have to get up once a year in front of 400 people at the Regent Hotel. We do a client briefing. You have to get up and, and talk. And I literally went, oh, my God, inside, because I'd never done a public talk in my life. Uh, but, of course, I went, yeah, I can do that, you know, no problem. Anyway, went back to my job. I didn't hear from Perpetual for a, a month, two months went by. Then I saw the job advertised in the paper, you know, equities manager Perpetual. So, sorry, they didn't offer you the job then. They just no, no, he just mentioned the equities. Would you be interested? Yeah, would I be interested? You know, right. Like, I'd apply for a different job. I'd apply for the fixed interest manager job, and the equity manager resigned on Friday. It was Chris Bernays, by the way. Um, anyway, as I said, a month or two went by. I saw the job advertised again. I thought, oh, obviously, they're, they're going for someone who, who's done it before. And uh, about two months after my original chat with them, I get another call from the headhunter, says, oh, they want to talk to you again. I thought, okay, why? Well. So I went to Perpetual. I mean, Perpetual was a lot smaller in those days, right? We're talking a, a, a pretty small institution. A trustee company. Yeah, it was a trustee company. It had a, a, a fund small called funds Industrial management. Share Fund, yeah. um, which was not available to the public in those days. So, yeah, I went along and they offered me the, the role as equities manager. There you go. Right time, right place. Incredible. Yeah, that's, that's very serendipitous. Terrific Incredible. stuff. So then you turn up at work. Yeah. Who's sitting around the desk? Uh, well, there, there was, a, as I said, Chris Bernays. So this is 88, early 88. Uh, the, so the crash has happened. It's happened. I was at Prudential when the crash happened, which was also another interesting day, you know. Where we, I remember having a blackboard trying to predict how many points the market would be down. I think the worst case... Someone thought 250 points. We went, oh, that's ridiculous. And it, it opened up down 500 points, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> so, yeah, look, the perpetual fund had gone through the crash. It survived pretty well because it was very conservatively managed. And when I got there, you know, there was a, a few analysts, some very clever ones. Bruce Robertson was one, Amanda yeah, Miller. Bruce. Uh, Bruce was really smart. Amanda Miller, really smart. And they, they were very ingrained in the perpetual way, which is ultra-conservative, which obviously had... 
you know, uh, really paid good dividends through the 87 crash because actually the industrial share fund was one of the funds, few funds in Australia which had a positive return in the uh, year ended. Well, that was a building block for Perpetual along with the people that they were hiring to become a big player. Well, yeah, as I said, in those days it was an internal fund. Then Peter McKillop, who'd employed me, he, he had this vision of um, going to the public with our funds. So they launched the, they launched the cash fund in 1988. And then in 1990, we launched the industrial share fund. You know, I, I was in charge of the, the fund then. We had to actually create a philosophy around it because there was no stated philosophy. Um, it was kind of buy, buy cheap stocks, uh, cheap conservative stocks was the philosophy, which obviously is not good enough when you're going out to see, you know, research houses and consultants. So I put together a, a, a philosophy, you know, the four criteria required, etc. I spent a lot of time studying the portfolio, actually, and also studying a lot of wills and estates uh, that had been a perpetual for 20 or 30 years. And, 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 you know, despite the crash, you could see that the market value of the stocks was still way above the cost. And I realised, yes, you see, there is a way of making money uh, by being in conservative companies with certain criteria, which was, you know, low debt, good management, good blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. So, so you mentioned a couple of analysts there, mm-hmm. but was I'm just trying to work out, you didn't really have a mentor. You were learning on the job? Yeah. And, and you had the four criteria? What were the four? They're still the four they use today, and I, I don't <laughs> remember them, but it, it's something like low debt levels, good management, uh, recurring earnings, I think, and there's one other, you know. So we had these the four criteria. And uh, and you went to market with that? That's right. We took the and pers- that resonated? Took the fund to prospectus 1990. Well, again, it was a, a time of major change. Obviously, a number of funds hadn't performed, you know, popular funds in those days were things like Clayton Robard, Equitalink, etc., you know, which obviously were full of specs. Which And they got hit in the crash. They got decimated, absolutely down, down 80% type stuff. And, you know, we went out with a very conservative fund with a long track record. You know, the industrial share fund had been going since 1966. So it was actually the oldest fund in Australia. And, uh, yeah, we went out with this very conservative, you know, portfolio, good returns, easily explaining uh, the sort of stocks we would buy. Um, yeah, and the rest is history, I guess. We got on approved list and started getting money in the door. and, and Off yeah. you went. And so we, who was we? Uh, mainly Peter Morgan. You know, Peter had arrived. Well, Peter had worked at, Delo- Peter worked at Deloitte's. And so you met him there? That's right. And uh, almost the first day I got to Perpetual, the phone rings. And I pick it up. He goes, hello, Peter Morgan here from Jardines. You know, Peter talks very quickly. Hello, Peter, Peter Morgan from 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 Deloitte. Yeah, that's right, mate. That's right. That's right. And it sort of hang up. And I phone him <laughs> up. Go, Peter. I want to have a chat to you. I know you. Can we have a chat about so? Yeah, mate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Anyway, whatever. And we got to know each other. You know, quite well. Great broker. <laughs> he was a terrible broker, actually. But I trusted him. You know, I'd worked him at Deloitte's. He wasn't a great salesman, but he was. I, I trusted him one hundred percent. He was an accountant like me. And uh, eventually I recruited Peter, got him at, uh, on a perpetual as my sort of 2IC, which again, people who interviewed him weren't sort of convinced that, you know, because he, you know, but when you looked at Peter's resume, you know, his amazing resume in terms of his won prizes at, at you know, SIA, uh, Securities Institute prizes, he won the Ducks Prize in the course at university. So he's a very, very smart guy. I guess we all know that. Um, so yeah, I brought Peter on board, and uh, that's when we started calling him Grumpy, actually, I think. And uh, yeah, and, and Peter and I, and then John Murray came uh, later, 
um, you know, we put together this philosophy and, and, and as I said, we took that to market in 1990. Can, can I just ask you about John? He came a bit later, mm-hmm. but he worked with you. He did. And John was a great marketer, if I remember correctly. Um, so you, had, you, had, you, you and him, um, or, or all of you, would have to go out and raise money then. You mm-hmm. talked about before presenting in front of 400 people, but it was a lot more than that, wasn't it? To build the fund out. Oh, yeah, look, it was, of course. You're on the road quite a bit. Of course. And, um, yeah, when I first got to Perpetual, I was on my own, basically. I mean, uh, in the equities team, I had John, I had Bruce Robertson and Amanda helping me. So you had to build it out. But I was the guy to get up in front of 400 people. I would have been awful, Matthew, honestly. I'd love to have a video of that speech because it would, it would be terrible. But anyway, because uh, I'd never done it before. And I remember I was just sweating like crazy you know, before <laughs> I got up there. No, I'll get up and chat for ages. But in those days, it was a real... And they say, you know, that a lot of people fear public speaking more than they fear, fear death. And I can sort of... You started that way. I believe But that. you're warm to the task. <laughs> so, yeah, so then, yeah, we, as I said, the important thing then when Peter McKillop decided Perpetual would launch the fund was to put a philosophy in place. And I'll never forget reading one up on Wall Street. I, I flew to... Peter Lynch. Flew to Malta. Read, I read it on the plan. I thought, wow, this is amazing, right? So on the way back, I bought another two copies and I gave one to John and one to Grumpy. And I said, you, you've got to read this, guys. This is, this is what we do. This is how we do it, right? This is value investing. This is exactly the way we do it. And we kind of used that and cobbled together our own investment philosophy, which then we used to take the fund to prospectus in 1990. And how was the performance off the back of that? You raised money and you're, you're trying to perform at the same time as well as build a business. How, how was the performance, performance over the next couple of years? Performance was fantastic because obviously the 1990-91 was the recession. Mm. So lots of companies were going broke. Great time uh, for value investing. Absolutely brilliant. And uh, a lot of companies were recapitalising. A lot of companies, you know, which actually um, had issues with trading at fractions, you know, like everything. In the 87 crash, everything got smashed. And particularly, I mean, the speckies and the, the specs, you know, resources, etc. got smashed and stayed there. But a lot of industrial stocks got smashed as well. And some of them had some valuable assets. And that's where we sort of, um, I remember... Some of the nights? What? Yeah. Uh, Southern Cross, no, it was, what was it called? It was a, a radio station, um, which was trading at six or seven cents. And uh, they'd raised all this money, and uh, they'd, 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 they'd acquired lots of different radio stations, and they um, they had a bit of debt. Of course, interest rates went to eighteen percent, and advertising revenues collapsed. So, you know, half these companies were <laughs> were gone. And I remember a new CEO came in, a guy called Gary Draffin, and he said, "Look, I've got to sell one of the stations, and once I sell one of the stations, we've got a business, whatever." So, we watched it and watched it. Westco, it was called Westco. Wesco, yeah, and um, yeah, they sold the station, and we sort of piled in, and and uh, you know, two years later, it was taken over. The shares got to so we didn't get in at six. Grumpy was always, oh, it's going to go broke, man. I said, Grump, Grump, and then <laughs> I, I always used to use Grumpy as my sounding board because Grumpy's never very enthusiastic about stocks, but. If I, if, you know, if I'd convinced Grumpy, Grumpy went, yeah, if eventually, oh, I think it's okay. You knew it was a buyer, right? Um, <laughs> High hurdle. But but you did that for a few years, but then then you packed up and left Perpetuals, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and it was um, obviously on the way to becoming a lot more than when you first arrived there. It had, it had turned the corner. Mm-hmm. But you, you joined County mm-hmm. and moved to Melbourne. That's right. What, what triggered that? 
oh look, Perpetual had been was was changing. There was new people from WA had taken it over, etc. And I, I thought it was the right time to to move. In the meantime, you know, Canton at West had become was was on the way to becoming the biggest fund manager in Melbourne, uh, and they wanted to launch into retail funds management, and uh, I, I joined County. And, and you'd done that before. With Perpetual, you got Yeah, well, I, well they, they, they knew what I'd done at Perpetual, yeah. you know. I'd launched the fund from scratch and got it to sort of on, on you know, lots of lists, etc. and it was doing very well, so so they recruited me to do that. And who did you work with there? Uh, Charles Massick and David Slack. Very good. You had great careers, those two. Brilliant people, honestly, such a top firm. I mean, I'd been at Perpetual, which was a lot smaller, and getting to County, which was, you and know... And what, what did they teach? What... Did they add to your thinking about <sighs> Really stock? interesting, really interesting, Matthew, because Perpetual was very much a bottom-up manager. It was sort of, you know, um, myself, Pete and John kind of discussing stocks. Oh, that one's cheap on a PU, whatever. And we buy it, you know. We never talked about index or benchmarks or index weights. We had no idea because we were sort of three accountants, you know, sort of <laughs> looking after money. And when I went to County, County was completely different because it was, it was an institutional manager. So everything was benchmark, you know. We were overweight, underweight, moved to neutral. It was like moving, it was like uh, moving into a new world, actually, you know. So I thought, wow, that's so different to, you know, uh, the retail sort of bottom-up uh, stock picking that we were doing. So that was an education in itself, you know, to understand. Good formative stuff because the people listening out there who like to pick stocks. To run a fund, you are picking stocks, but you're doing a lot more than that, aren't you? You're building portfolios and trying to make sure that they can weather certain environments and building you know, different um, stocks in different industries and, and trying to diversify. It's quite a complex creature when you put a portfolio together. It is, it is. And and how do you put a portfolio together? I mean, some people will go and use the index weights as their measure of should they have 10% in BHP or 8% in BHP, you know. Other people might not have many BHP because they don't like the volatility of BHP, right? So, so you know, if you're an index type manager, you'll go via, you'll use the index more as a guideline. If you're a more bottom-up manager, you'll, you'll, you'll do... You'll you'll put your portfolio together quite independently of the index sometimes. So you have both experiences. Yeah, that's right. Then, that's right. Then county. But so, what did you realise you were? Were you a bottom up investor, or could you? Take I was both? definitely a bottom up investor, but I, I realised you had to take notice a little bit of the index. You know, um, not to necessarily build your portfolio, but to to at least understand why your portfolio was, was uh, performing differently to the index. Sounds very basic, I know, but in those days, you know, this is the very formative years of funds management, not just me, but the whole industry. And, uh, yeah, that's what I realised. I realised, right, when you put a portfolio together, fine, you pick bottom-up stocks, no problem, um, but keep a look now on the index rate because that, that'll tell you why you've performed well or badly in the next six, three months or six months or whatever. It all sounds pretty simple, but when you do manage money, it is something you that is a bit more complex than what people think because you like certain stocks you want to be overweight or be in that stock and then you might you might find three or four and all of a sudden you're overweight a sector and that sector's underperformed for a quarter and you oh well that's why I'm not there's all these funny little things that happen yes yeah. because the people giving you money are matching you against an index well that's what everybody gets you know, measured against, you know, the whole industry gets measured against each other, but also against the index, right? You're supposed to add value versus the index. So, yeah, so the index is a, is quite a relevant thing to look at. But as I said, you've got to be 
mindful that it's not the perfect guide to how to construct a portfolio. So then, then you were back in Sydney. Were you thinking about then that you could run your own business? Not yet, no, no. So I moved back to BMP. Yep. Uh, John Hodge, who I'd worked with at Prudential, was there and, and, and County had gone through its own turmoil because a lot of the guys went up and set up portfolio partners. Yep. And that was a good time to move. Uh, and, and, and BMP had hunted me. And, and when I went to BMP, I sort of put together the perpetual philosophy and the county. You know, that's when I sort of... Put it all together. Put it all together. And in my mind, it became very clear sort of how to manage portfolios and, you know, understand the relative risks to the index versus the real risk of the index, etc. So, um, yeah, so I was at BMP for four years. And then um, it was, you know, I got approached by a couple of people to set up my own thing, and uh, which I did in 98. Oh, so it wasn't you thinking about it as much as people saying, have you thought about it? Yeah. And we'd like to back you. Yeah. And you're talking about people who are planners, institutional money. What, what kind of money was there available to you if you did start your own business? It was planners, really. It was financial planners. Um, actually, what had happened is when I was at BMP, Jardine Fleming tried to headhunt me right. uh, because they wanted to move their Hong Kong-based Australian money down to Australia. And I'd sort of accepted the job and everything. And I, I told Jardine, do you mind if I go and speak to a couple of clients to tell them I'm, I'm, I'm going to be joining, you know? And two of those clients said, no, mate, you should set up your own thing. We're not going to keep following you around in different <laughs> managers. We've followed you through Perpetual County BMP. It's time you set up your own thing because it's, you know, <laughs> that's the only way we think you'll sort of, you know, we want to. And that, that's what basically what happened. And, and it, it, that period, late 90s, was mm -hmm, 98. Mm -hmm. into the 2000s, became one of those great eras of the boutique investment manager in Australia. There was money moving. It took a while, but there were, there, were, there were quite a few names that appeared. So it was the next evolution of where money management went. And people were after great stock pickets. Well, look, it was a very, it was a, it, it, a, it was a boutique was it's in its nascency. I think the only other boutiques in those days were Maple Brown Abbott, mm. uh, Platinum, Portfolio Partners, that's it, I think. Yeah. yeah they were the three that just, started just to set up. Yeah, it was just starting to happen where people went out and set up their own. And what gave you the confidence you could do it? Well, obviously having clients saying they're going to back me, you know, was a big plus. You know, so I partnered up with a guy called Otto Bitulo from Melbourne. Um, Otto had been at Lonsec, you know, for, for a few years and he'd... he broke to you, had he? Yes, yes. And he'd sold his business Lonsec to Zurich. Mm -hmm. And so he was looking for something else to do. So I partnered up with him and set up IML in um, 1998. And what did you start with? What kind of money? Uh, about 120 million. That's a nice start. It was. And paid, paid the bills. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's the key, isn't it? Well, I took a big pay, pay cut and everything, you know, blah, 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 because... You know, it was 120 million at 0.5%, so 600,000 in fees. You know, obviously we had to have an office, had to have staff, etc. So and how many staff did you have? At the beginning we had four, five oh. including me. Yeah. That, that's that's a big move because people are depending on you then. This is uh, a business. It is, it was, yeah. We've got incomes, we've got families, all those kind of things. Yep. It's an interesting change from working in an institution. It was. And it went well from day one or...? Well, well you, you, you snook it a little bit because it was 1998. We all know the tech boom was was really starting to charge. Crazy. And that doesn't feel like your environment. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy time. So we set up, you know, 98. It was going okay for the first six months. Maybe we grew our farm to 150 or something. 
maybe 180, you know, and then the tech boom comes along, you know, and um, I mean, how can I describe it? You know, every single piece of rubbish that had technology on it going through the roof and every decent company like Woolworths, Amcor, Brambles being sold down. So it wasn't just the techs running, it was the old economy stocks, as they're called, being sold down. So our performance looked, looked bloody, you know, terrible. You know, I remember, the, I think the index was up um, 5% one quarter and we were down 6 or something, you know? So, like, really Big bad. misses. Really Talking bad. about index. Well, that's it, right? So this is where the index is not necessarily a guide to, you know, um, how to set your portfolio. And, of course, News Corp, you know, became, I think, went to 18% of the index in those days. Because well, that was our proxy for tech in Australia, wasn't it, in a lot of ways? Well, it what was happened media. was, yeah, well, what happened was uh, AOL bid for Time Warner in, in America, I don't know if you remember. Yep. Um, and um, then everyone said, oh, wow, content companies, you know, and, and News Corp was a sort of content company. And there was this rumour that Yahoo was going to bid for them, and, and, and they went, you know, flying through the roof to 30 bucks, and they were 18... You know, 15, 16, 18% of the index, and we had zero in New School, you know? And it was painful. It was really painful. And was that your worst time in your career? Really difficult. Really, one of the, if not the, yes, terrible. And turning up to see your investors? Terrible. <laughs> no, it was really bad because they, they, you what, know, were, go, were they well, angry or oh, they? yeah, angry. I mean, you've lost the plot, mate. You've lost the plot. I, go, I, I haven't lost the plot. I'm just buying stocks, which you know, fundamentals. You know, good, uh, good management, recurring earnings. We had a philosophy at IML as well, which I put together. It's not dissimilar to the perpetual one. Um, yeah, it was really difficult. Really and, difficult. And so we got to April two thousand. Yep. And the the tech boom was over. Happened, well, happened slowly, but it happened quickly, wasn't it? It fell quite quickly. Well, the Fed had started putting up rates, and then the bubble burst in April, and I thought, oh, thank God, you know. But actually, it rebounded then between April and September. I don't know if you remember yeah, again. Yeah, definitely. So I thought, wow, it's all over, fantastic. And then it rebounded again to September. I think, oh, Jesus, you know. And then September it went and really went. Like, it, you know, your e-corps, your solution sixes, your uh, DAVnets, your voice nets. I mean, they just got absolutely they, smashed. And some of them disappeared. Yep, most of them did. Yeah, capital dried up and they relied on capital being ploughed in just to keep going. It's just nonsense, honestly. It was one of the biggest bubbles that, you, know, you could ever see. But at the same time, your old world companies, as we were, they found favour. Absolutely. So it was 2001 and 2002 a great time? Amazing. Because the other thing that had happened, you know, we were trying to break into the retail market, you know, financial planners. And I'd go and see people and tell them, listen, this is what this is what we do, this is how we select stocks. And they go, yeah, thanks, mate. But, you know, we use, we use um, you know, we've got Merrill Lynch, uh, BT, Colonial First State, you know, they're all doing well. And, and, and you guys have lost the plot anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I go, okay, well, thanks, you know. So that's it, right? But but in, in, in that tech boom, obviously everything changed because a lot of those fund managers, you know, did get, um, you know, caught in a lot of those stocks. I mean, there was, I remember, one very famous imputation fund, you know, which had, I think, 6% in Wantel, 4% in Davnet, you know, which is not a very that, They were career-damaging, some of those moves in they the were, end. They were, they were. Look, at, and, and fortunately, we kind of stuck to our knitting. It wasn't easy. I, I went to the aquarium, as as I think has been quoted. You know, I bought a pass for the aquarium. And this was in 2000, 1999? Yeah, 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 so you, yeah, you bought not, a pass and you go and account. sit down there and scratch your head. Yeah, just look at the fish. <laughs> well, it was very difficult because, you know... <laughs> 
what what can you do, right? You're sort of doing what you think is right. Uh, the mark is just you, your performance makes you look like a complete twat. You know, your clients think you're a complete idiot. Um, so you've got to go back to the office and do what you do, you know. And staff at the same time, we don't have many, but they're asking, what are we going to do about this, boss? And you, know, you sort of calmly go, we just stick to our knitting. We'll just keep going, doing what we're doing, right? But you'd go home and think, shit, you know, like I've just set up a business and, <laughs> you know, this is, um, if this goes on for two or three years, I won't have it. I mean, what was the low point on your thumb? Yeah, that's fun oh, under look, management. Oh, got back to 120. We did look. So it went up and came back down. Yeah, yeah. And the clients we had kind of understood most of them. You know, they were kind of hanging in, but it was tough. It was tough. And I'd go and see, um, you know, financial planners who had money in these in, in these things, and they weren't happy, right? Because yeah, they just as, as you said, they were very angry. They were very upset. They were, you know, yeah. They, so, they, so they, did they, the, was the making of the business. Into a into a genuinely good business that two thousand post September two thousand twenty, through to probably two thousand I mean two thousand and two thousand through to two thousand end of two thousand and two that couple two thousand and four really so what happened we won fund manager of the year in two thousand and two and two thousand and three um, we got on everybody's approved list and you know our fund went from sort of one hundred and fifty million to four billion within two and a bit years incredible and what were some of the stocks. We've talked about the old world companies. What what drove that performance? Well, you didn't have to be a genius, Matthew. I mean, in a way, I mean, I guess you just, you know, you were buying Woolworths on a P of 10 and Amcor on a P of 10 and whatever, you know, during the tech boom. Um, and then obviously, as I said, the, the a lot of people kept backing some of those techs, you know, and trying to buy them on the dip. Um, when the thing to do is to buy, you know, those sort of companies. And, and, and of course, then... You know, the smaller companies start to perform well as well, the good quality smaller companies. So, you know, our performance, you know, we, we did really well for, you know, two or three years in a row. We did what we said we'd do, right? That's the thing. I think that was the important thing. We did what we said we'd do, which was to pick stocks on their merit, good quality stocks, good, you know, and that, that was that was obviously, um, yeah. But you required a lot of resilience because there's ups and downs and... The, mark, the market can be a nasty creature at times. Terrible. It can be very helpful at times, but it can be nasty. Yep. So it's not, not always easy. Terrible. But, and, but then, and then again, we underperformed from 2004 till the GFC because, again, you know, the momentum, the market's going all a bit crazy and your Centros and your Babcock and Browns and whatever, and, and we started to really struggle again, you know. Um, and then the GFC kind of... And the Euro crisis, I don't remember, the Euro crisis in 2010, 2011. Yep, post And we before, again, we were picking, you know, fantastic companies like Bunnings Warehouse at $1.20 and, you know, the good quality stuff. And, and then we, we won Fund Manager of the Year again in 2011, 2012, I think. Deja vu. Two years in a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you like a crisis. Well, yeah, some crisis better than others. I mean, I think the COVID one was a, a bit diff different and difficult. But yes, yes, sometimes when, you know, when you get these extreme valuations in certain sectors, which you know is, is, is a bubble, you know, or everything feels like, smells like, is a bubble, you know, as, as we saw in um, pre the uh, 87 crash, as we saw in the tech boom, as we saw pre-GFC with things like Centro and Babcock and Brown, you know, um, yeah, so you kind of stick to your knitting and, and hope that common sense prevails, right? Yeah, and as, as people have said, those booms can go a lot longer than what they should do and, and they can really hurt for a long time. Yep. But um, eventually it does play out. You've just got to be 
resilient and patient. Yeah. yeah. So that's been, that's been a great career. You've obviously detailed some of the better and some of the worst periods. Brings me to today's funds management, and you've just officially retired, which is great. What, what are some of the differences you see today? You know, it's, what is it, it's 35 years since you've, or maybe even slightly longer since you, you put those four points together and started your journey. How would you sum up, what are the, some of the things that stand out to you that might be a bit different Look, I, th- I think the whole industry is very different. Clearly, um, you know, the, the number of boutiques, as I said, when I started IML in 98, there was maybe four or five boutiques. Today, there's probably more boutiques than there are investable stocks. Yep. You know, there's probably 200 Australian equity boutiques. So there's, you know, far too many boutiques, I think. To be honest, people think it's very easy, but it's, it's not that easy. I think the other thing that's changed that makes it that's making it harder is... The Australian market too has shrunk, you know, it's shrunk dramatically. In terms of investable well, stocks? If you look, yes, invest, if you look at certain sectors, we used to have a food sector with uh, George Weston, Goodman Fielder, Snack Foods. We, we don't have a food sector anymore. Uh, we used to have a couple of brewers, right, Lion, Nathan and Foster's. We don't have any brewers listed. We used to, in the banking sector, we used to have Bank of Melbourne, St George, uh, Bank West, right? Well, now we've got sort of the four majors and, the, you know... <laughs> Utilities, we used to have, you know, Osnet, Spark Infrastructure, Duet, whatever. Uh, once Origin's gone, there's going to be one stock left in the utilities sector, APA. Mm. Yep. So I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's getting harder in a way because there are less good quality smaller stocks from which to get your outperformance, right? So the, the top 20 is a big part of the index. You have to, you know, the sort of manager... We used to be, I used to be, is you want to find the good smaller companies that will do better than the large ones, right? But it's it's harder because there's not that many good quality smaller companies. And do you think that's a reason in recent years, as we know, especially when rates post the GFC kind of trundled down, then COVID went to zero, the poor old value investor got left behind for quite a while and, and growth became paramount in terms of performance. Do, do you think... That reflects in Australia, what you're talking about there, the way the indexes have changed in terms of a makeup. Yes, I think that that has changed. And, and look, to be honest, the, the, the resource sector, you know, a, a lot of value managers are always a bit cautious about the resource sector because clearly they don't have many of the criteria you look for in terms of recurring earnings. Very volatile. Et very volatile. So you tend to shy away from, you know, lithium or whatever it is you know that's that's popular so that that's made it very hard so i think that the 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 choice of good quality industrials has really declined you know because of all these takeovers so there's been a lot of consolidation or foreign takeovers and um yeah a lot of the actions in the resources now and i think i i know at iml you know we've struggled the last few years it's because of that factor because you, you you're trying to look for small companies you know, you're, trying, you're looking at the index and saying, oh, the banks aren't that attractive, resources, you know, whatever. So you look for smaller companies that you hope will add to your outperformance, you know, but there's not that many uh, good quality smaller companies anymore. And then on the other hand, it's the resource sector where, there are, you know, the, the outperformance has come from, you know, things like, as I said, the lithium stocks, etc. right? So. And so do you think the value manager has got a future under that environment? Oh, that's look, a structural it, issue you're talking about. It's it's harder. I think it's it's it will be harder. Yes, I think and, it's and, harder. The, and 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 as you said, the, the, as I think was mentioned, um, as we talked about a bit earlier before the interview, you know, ETFs and index yeah, passive and all that is active. Is, yeah, it makes it very difficult. You know, so the, there's a lot more competition. A, you've got 200 boutiques. 
B, you've got an index which is very different to what it was 10 or 15 years ago in terms of the spaces like where IML or a lot of value managers would hide have, have reduced. So you're being pushed more into sort of the resource sector to get your outperformance. Um, and C, as we're saying, you know, ETFs and index funds uh, makes it extremely difficult because a lot of financial planners are, are going for low-cost ETFs and, and uh, that, index. And, and a lot of them reflect... Uh, in Australia, those top 20 companies which dominate, yep. or they're tailored towards something that sounds terrific like resources. Mm. So yep. it covers all those kind of bases that you're talking about, which is the new environment. If you were starting today, if it was 1998 again, but today in this environment, what would you do differently? If I was starting a boutique fund manager today, and I might start one next year, I haven't decided yet, <laughs> um, it's, I'd, I'd focus on international equities. I don't think, honestly, I think the Australian market, the amount of superannuation, the amount of money chasing, you know, a handful of stocks. I mean, we've got, we've got really one, maybe two telcos, you know, we've got two supermarkets, we've got four big banks. It's, it, it, it's, it's such a concentrated index. And then, as I said, if you look at the quality below the top 20, you know, I, I mean, I, I've gone through it a thousand times. I'm still going through it now. You know, you take out the REITs, you take out the resources, there's very few good quality industrials, you know, in Australia. Whereas if you go to, my son is managing a, a fund in Europe now, you know, uh, you go to European markets, you've got choices of hundreds of different chemical companies, um, IT companies, um, transport service companies, um, oxygen uh, companies, you know, all sorts of things, right? There's a much bigger variety in offshore markets. And, and you mentioned your son there. And you mentioned, well, you might start a, a boutique. Is that more of a family office? Is that what you... We've already got a family office. We've set that up. My, my son lives in London and he's managing money, you know, on my behalf um, and looking at offshore companies. And as I said, like when I look at the... He's, he's recruited an analyst and everything. When I look at the population of stocks that they have to look at, you know, compared to us here in Australia sort of... Going over the same old hundred stocks, you know, it's uh, it's a much much broader, op bigger opportunity to set overseas. It's quite deflating in the sense if you take your whole story when you came out here in the mid '80s, and because you'd you'd met Australians in London, as you said, and they were slightly different, open kind of honest people. When you came out here, and there was a lot going on, deregulation of the banks, and it was all quite exciting. It feels like now that it's it's gone the other way to a degree in terms of listed equities. It, the excitement isn't here anymore. It's, it's tough. It's, it's, it's tough. elsewhere. Well, we've lost, haven't we? We, we, we don't manufacture very much anymore. Um, as I said, it's mainly the resources is what our biggest export is. Uh, we don't have very many value-added industrials, exporting or whatever, you know. Uh, I also think the environment, you know, the, the political environment in Australia has become um, quite adverse to, to business when you look at the all the different regulations, compliance, getting tighter and tighter all the time, you know. Our energy costs, I think, are a bit of a joke, you know, that we're paying uh, so much for energy in a, a country that supplies coal, gas and uranium to all the world and we're paying more for our electricity than most of those countries, you know. I, I just think, yeah, we need, there's a, something has to happen in Australia, I think, politically, etc., for, for people to, to wake up. I think we've been... Very fortunate as a country because of the iron ore. Um, you know, the exports have gone from 150 million tonnes 25 years ago to 1.2 billion tonnes now. And, you know, we used to get $20 a tonne, now we're getting 120. It's so remarkable, isn't just it? Just incredible, right? And that's created this wealth and whatever for Australia, really, you know. Um, so we've relied on commodity exports. 
uh, and China really for 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 that and and immigration to fuel our local um, economy. But really, in terms of creating an environment for companies to set up, you know, uh, whatever sort of companies, I, I don't think I think Australia is missing out on a lot of that. Well, that sounds like you're still going to be looking at markets, given what you've just told us. So I won't go down that path. But retirement, what, what's in it? You were telling us just before we recorded this that you've been to Europe. Mm-hmm. You've got your Maltese soccer team that mm-hmm. you, you've loyally followed around all over Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. That takes up a fair bit of your time? It does. I'm also involved with the Central Coast Mariners in, um, in Gosford, and I'm a sponsor of their academy. And, um, you know, I've sponsored a, a number of scholarships for... For a number of boys who are now playing in Europe, which has been, you know, pretty satisfying, and uh, I'm still very involved with the Mariners. So yeah, that keeps me busy. Apart from looking at the Australian market, you know, um, from time to time. So it sounds like you're busy. Just just on your Maltese soccer team that you you sponsor. How have they done? Maltese well, is a small country in European terms. It is. It is. <laughs> Look, I do it because it was the team I used to play for when I when I lived in Malta. You know, when I left at eighteen, nineteen, you know, I used to play in there reserve team or whatever and when I went back 10 or 12 years ago I went to, into the old clubhouse and the guy who used to coach me you know 20 years before was there having a coffee nice and I went wow <laughs> Frankie Maltese are you still here he said oh well where else do you want me to go right and, <laughs> and that's how it started I said well can I help you and we started off with a shirt um, sponsorship and our investors mutual or whatever and then since yeah, then you, now you, I'm the, you were sold straight away I'm the, well I started, started small and then you, you know I've been sort of hooked in so but, yeah, the, so but the clubs performed yeah 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 they, they were a sort of second third division club you know uh, for many many years when, when, when I played for them certainly and now they're in the premier division of Malta and uh, we've qualified for European football for six out of the last ten years so that's not too bad very, very good, good actually. now you've left to finish up on, you've in, left IML, originally Investors Mutual. You'd sold a fair bit of your stock beforehand to, to French Group. Um, but is Investors Mutual in a good spot? Simon Conn's been there for since day one, I think, or mm-hmm. almost. He, he was one of the first four employees. A terrific guy. Amazing. And he's a good performer. Hugh Giddy's been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. So are you happy with where you've left it? Is, yeah, is look, the legacy uh, strong and, and do you think it, it's got a good future because you've got good people there? Yeah, look, it's, it's uh, I mean, the philosophy hasn't changed. Uh, obviously, the people, some of them have been there a long time. But as I said, there are challenges for, for value managers um, in terms of the, the investable universe, in terms of particularly the sort of stocks, you know, uh, that I've always liked and IML likes, which is recurring earnings, good management, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's challenging. But, but I think, you know... Eventually, it'll come round. I mean, the resource boom can't go on forever. Uh, and some of these, you know, smaller companies which are good value will, will start to perform well. Very good. Well, on that note, we're going to say congratulations on a terrific career. Thanks for coming in today. And the story, it's a cracker. Thanks, Thanks for your time, Matthew. Really appreciate being asked. And to do this. lovely knowing you over the last 30 odd years. Thanks again, Matthew. Thank, Thank you. you.